Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct and welcome to episode two of Halloween. If you are just tuning in to this Halloween series and are unfamiliar with what it is, Halloween is the one time of year where we post back-to-back true crime episodes in the days leading up to Halloween which means you guys have a Halloween-inspired case from the 24th of October through the 28th of October. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the solved case of Lisa Ann French. This case is definitely one that's very hard to get through. It's very frustrating because it was so preventable, and I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Lisa Ann French was born on June 2nd, 1964 in Oshkosh, Wisconsin to her parents, Alan French and Marianne Gehrig. Now her parents' relationship didn't last very long. They split up shortly after Lisa was born and her mother remarried a man named Bruce. After Bruce and Marianne got married, the two of them then had a second child. They had a boy, and the family lived on 192 Amory Street in a town called Fond du Lac in Wisconsin. It was one of those idyllic, almost movie-esque neighborhoods where the trees are lining the very well-kept sidewalks, and families would keep their porch lights on and let their kids run around until dark. And Elisa was a very spunky little girl. She had brown eyes and brown hair. And at the time that she was murdered, her hair was cut into a little shaggy bob and she was a part of the Girl Scouts. And she attended Chegwin Elementary School where she had recently began the fourth grade. So this case begins on Halloween night, October 31st of 1973, and Lisa was nine years old at the time. Now on this particular Halloween, Lisa had plans to go trick-or-treating with her friend, and they were going to head over to a little get-together that was being held by the neighborhood called Pumpkin Place. Now again, this was a place where kids could go, families could go, adults would go. It was just a place for people in the neighborhood to go on Halloween, and so that is where Lisa and her friend had planned on going. Now plans ended up changing when Lisa's friend ended up getting into a little bit of trouble earlier that day and her parents grounded her, which included not going trick-or-treating that night. Now what that meant for Lisa was that she now had no one to go trick-or-treating with. Her parents were both busy that night. Her mom was staying home watching her younger brother. And so Lisa decided that she was going to go trick-or-treating by herself. And you have to remember, this is very much a different time period. This is the seventies and this was a very tight-knit neighborhood and community that they lived in. So Lisa's parents didn't think that there was going to be anything wrong with allowing her to go trick-or-treating by herself. And along with that, they also didn't just give her free reign. They did give her some rules to abide by. Those rules included that she was only allowed to go out for one hour and she had a 7 p.m. curfew. So she left her house a little bit after 6 p.m. and she was told to be back no later than 7 p.m. Now for this particular Halloween, Lisa had wanted to be a butterfly. However, the weather in Wisconsin was going to be a little bit chillier. And so her mom did not want her to be a butterfly because she said it was going to be too cold outside. She didn't want Lisa getting sick. So instead of being a butterfly, Lisa opted for dressing as a homeless person for Halloween. And trust me, 
I know what you're thinking, but let's just keep going. So Lisa ended up leaving her house to go trick-or-treating that night a little bit after 6 p.m., and her parents were the ones to send her off. Her costume consisted of her having duct tape on her jeans, she had a floppy hat and a green parka, and she also dotted some freckles onto her cheeks as well. Now, what we know is that Lisa made a stop at two different houses. She first went to a local teacher's home and got candy from her, and then continued by walking to a classmate of hers's house who lived across the street from her. And like I just mentioned, Lisa had a 7 p.m. curfew. However, when 7 p.m. came and went and Lisa still wasn't home, her mom started to get a little worried. Now, even though her mom was worried at this time, she decided to give Lisa a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. It was Halloween and all the kids were out trick-or-treating. She didn't want to take Lisa away from that. So she just assumed that Lisa had lost track of time and that she would be home at any minute. However, when eight o'clock passed, when nine o'clock passed, and when 10 o'clock passed and Lisa still wasn't home, her parents knew that something was very wrong and they decided to call the police to file a missing persons report. Now, a little bit after 10 p.m., there were some people in the neighborhood who started to get word that Lisa was missing, and in particular, a woman named Betty, who was head of the Block Parents, and if you're unfamiliar, because I certainly was, Block Parents are a parent-teacher association-sponsored group, and this group was from Lisa's school. So when Betty got word that Lisa was missing, she called all the other Block Parents, and everyone brought their children in from trick-or-treating. Now, police scoured the neighborhood that Lisa lived in that first night, and by the following morning, they had over 5,000 volunteers that had joined in the search for Lisa. By the following day, the National Guard also joined the search. They had helicopters flying around and circling overhead, and volunteers that were on horseback marching through fields. And out of those 5,000 volunteers, 700 block parents had joined in, and there was really no shortage when when it came to the search for Lisa. The search went on for four days, and as you can imagine, this was brutal for Lisa's mother and for her stepfather, not only not knowing what happened to Lisa, but just feeling the guilt of allowing her to go out and trick-or-treat on her own was eating them alive. Now, sadly, the search for Lisa came to an end four days later in a town about 10 minutes away from where Lisa lived on November 3rd, 1973, at around 11.30 a.m. There was a man named Gerald Braun who was driving his tractor home when he found two brown plastic bags stuffed behind a barbed wire fence near a forest on McCabe Road. Now, Gerald decided to get off of his tractor and pick up the plastic bags. And when he did so, he thought that he was just being a good Samaritan and picking up trash on the side of the road. However, when he grabbed the bags, he realized that this was something much more terrifying. 
Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hey guys, what's up? It's Savannah. I wanted to take a quick second away from Hollow Week to announce to my Killer Instinct family that I am starting a brand new podcast called My Thoughts Exactly. If you're familiar with my lifestyle channel on YouTube, then you already know that I have a lot of thoughts and I am certainly not afraid to share them. Everything from horrible breakups, self-worth, navigating friendships, health and wellness, and simply navigating life, I've shared it all. And don't worry, Killer Instinct isn't going anywhere, but I'm so excited to bring it back where it all started and tell it like it is. That includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. Think of it like us FaceTiming over a glass of wine. First episode premieres on November 9th, and you can subscribe on any podcast platform to stream it, and I can't wait to see you there. When Gerald grabbed the bags, he noticed that whatever was in the bags were extremely heavy, a lot heavier than he had expected. And when he opened up the first bag, he found Lisa's Halloween costume stuffed inside of one. And when he opened up the second bag, he found Lisa's body. Gerald immediately contacted authorities who rushed out to the scene and police were automatically able to confirm that the body that was found was nine-year-old Lisa French. An autopsy revealed that Lisa died from asphyxiation. However, the pathologist was able to confirm that Lisa suffered a heart attack due to the shock that she went in from the sexual assault that she endured. So this nine-year-old girl was sexually assaulted. She had a heart attack as a result from the shock of the assault and then was strangled to death afterwards. Once Lisa's body was brought home, her family put together a funeral for her that took place on November 6th, 1973. And people all throughout the community and Lisa's classmates came together to say their goodbyes. Now, while Lisa's family and friends were mourning Lisa and mourning their loss, police had now changed this investigation from a missing persons investigation to a homicide investigation. Authorities began going door to door through Lisa's neighborhood, talking to all of the neighbors on her street and anyone in the area who they could get a hold of to see if anyone had any information. However, that strategy really left them at a standstill as no one had any idea what happened to Lisa. Shortly after that, police made a statement saying that there was a $10,000 reward for anyone who could come forward with any information regarding Lisa's killer, thinking that this would be a really great incentive to get people to start talking. However, they got no leads from that either. 
So now we fast forward to March of 1974. So we are now months past Lisa's death and police were really at a standstill. They were struggling with what direction to go in at that point. And they decided the next best thing to do would be to try and retrace Lisa's steps on the night that she went missing. Now, even though retracing steps is something that authorities tried to do in the beginning and something that they did do, the reason they kept going back to Lisa's neighborhood is because they were convinced that whatever happened to Lisa happened in that neighborhood. They knew that that's where she was the night that she went missing. That's where she went missing from. So that's why they continued to go back there and try and retrace her steps. Now this time in March of 1974, when they went back, they began talking to Lisa's neighbors as they had done in the past. And they spoke to a man named Gerald Turner specifically. Now, Gerald Turner lived half a mile away from where Lisa lived with her family. And just to be clear, just so there's no confusion, the man who discovered Lisa's body was named Gerald Braun, but this guy, Gerald Turner, is a different guy. So two Geralds, but two different men. So like I just mentioned, Gerald Turner lived a half a block away from Lisa and her family with his girlfriend, Arlene Penn, as well as their newborn daughter. Now, before Lisa's death, Gerald and Lisa had a very nice relationship. Lisa really liked going over to Gerald's house. She did so quite frequently. She liked to play with his daughter. And Gerald knew Lisa's family well too, because before they had moved into their separate houses just a half block away from each other, they actually each lived in the same duplex. So they had been neighbors before this had happened. Now, Gerald did have one prior conviction. He was accused of statutory rape of a 15-year-old babysitter in December of 1972, so a little less than a year before Lisa's death. However, even though he was investigated, he was never prosecuted. So all he had to do was pay a $250 fine and he was able to walk free. And surprisingly enough, he was never placed on any sort of sex offender registry list or anything like that. However, police became aware of his prior charge and wanted to speak with him. Now, when police got to his house on March 27th, 1974, this was the second time that they had spoke to him. The first was just in the initial days following her death. So this was the second. Police arrived at Gerald's home and asked if he would go down to the police station with them to just chat about where he was the night of Lisa's disappearance. His girlfriend Arlene was at the Pumpkin Place party and returned home around 7 p.m. and then left again at 8 p.m. to go visit her mother. He told police that he was home throughout the entire night and that he didn't go to Pumpkin Place or to her mother's house with her because he was feeling sick. Gerald also said that he couldn't remember if Lisa had trick-or-treated at his house because he passed out candy to so many kids and he couldn't specifically remember if Lisa was there or not. Now, police had asked Gerald if he would be willing to take a polygraph test to prove he was telling the truth, and when he did, the results came back as inconclusive. Now, police asked him to take the test a second time to get conclusive results, and he agreed to do it. However, when he arrived at the police station to take the test, he refused 
to go through with it. And this is where Gerald really flips the script because he told police when he walked in for this second polygraph that he did not want to take the exam. He also said he did not want an attorney, but he did say that he was going to tell police everything that happened that night. And police were all ears. Now, before we move forward onto what he told them, we're going to take a quick second and thank our sponsors for today's video. So now we get to Gerald's confession and police were quite frankly, very surprised that he had gotten to a point where he was so willing and wanting almost to confess. He did not want an attorney present. He didn't want to take a polygraph exam. He just wanted to tell them what happened. So let's talk about what Gerald said happened that night. According to him, he said that on the night of Halloween, Gerald had left his front door open for the trick-or-treaters to walk into the doorway and grab the candy for themselves. He said that while he was sitting on the couch, Lisa walked into his doorway, said trick-or-treat, and went to grab for his candy. Now, Lisa already having a pre-existing friendly neighborly relationship with Gerald, stayed around and started chatting with Gerald, and Gerald said that he started talking to her about trick-or-treating and Halloween and her costume before ultimately he was able to lure her into his bedroom. Once he got into his bedroom with Lisa is when he said he violently, sexually sodomized Lisa before murdering her. As we know from the autopsy, Lisa had a heart attack from the shock of the encounter before she was strangled to death. At that point, Gerald said he disposed of Lisa and her clothing in garbage bags. Gerald described the attack as highly sexually motivated. He admitted that when he noticed that Lisa wasn't breathing, he did attempt to revive her. However, in the middle of this attempt, his girlfriend Arlene ended up coming home from the pumpkin place and he panicked. So he grabbed socks to put over his hands, that way it would prevent fingerprints, and then moved Lisa into the bathroom. It was at that point that he encouraged Arlene to go to her mother's house alone, even though it was something they had originally planned on doing together. After Arlene finally left the house around 8 p.m., Gerald then took Lisa's body and her clothes and drove her to the disposal site. During the disposal process, Gerald wore gloves in order to avoid getting his fingerprints on Lisa's body or the crime scene, and after after the attack, he wiped down Lisa's shoes and her clothes. Now, even though Gerald did confess at this point, police really still needed that physical evidence in order to prove that this is what had happened. And luckily, they were able to obtain that physical evidence when they found hair samples on Lisa's body and clothing. And those hair samples ended up being a positive match to Gerald Turner. So due to this, Gerald was arrested on August 9th, 1974. However, several days later on August 21st, Gerald and his attorney actually tried to dismiss the confession that he made, stating that Gerald was being coerced by police into making the confession, despite the fact that he himself said he didn't want an attorney and that he didn't want to take a polygraph. 
However, at this point, police already had the physical evidence that linked Gerald Turner to the crime, so that was enough to convict Gerald. And the judge ultimately concluded that Gerald's confession was voluntary, and they would be able to use his confession in court. The trial for Gerald began on January 27, 1975, and Gerald was pleading not guilty to charges of first-degree murder. After the trial was over and after almost eight hours of deliberation, the jury found Gerald guilty of second-degree murder, sexual perversion, enticing a child for immoral purposes, as well as indecent behavior with a child, and he was sentenced to 38 years and six months in prison, which in my opinion is nowhere near long enough. Now, surprisingly enough, Gerald actually got granted parole on October 13th, 1992, so only after serving 17 of his 38-year sentence. And get this, he was released on good behavior, which as you can imagine, completely infuriated the entire community and everyone else who was invested in this case. Once he was released, he ended up moving to Milwaukee and living in a halfway house. And Gerald Turner was actually the reason that Wisconsin passed a law on May 26, 1994 called Turner's Law, which stated that criminals who have been paroled or released based on good behavior have to be held in mental institutions if there is a probability or a likelihood that they would commit another crime, which in my opinion is just slightly contradicting considering the fact that you would think that if someone was released on good behavior, you would be confident in the fact that they wouldn't commit a crime again. So if the thought that this could repeat itself and this could happen again was there, they more than likely should not be released on good behavior. But then, just one year after his parole release, Gerald ended up getting sent back to prison on November 23rd, 1993, because the Department of Corrections appealed that they had made a mistake and they had miscalculated Gerald's parole for good behavior after he violated it, when his parole officer found very graphic and violent pornographic materials, as well as a letter that he had written to Lisa. In this letter, he said, quote, Dear Lisa, I doubt that I could ever fully realize the terror you experienced at my hands. For that night of the children to have started out so joyous for you to only end so tragically will haunt me forever. I can still see you standing in the doorway with what felt like beaming at having recognized me. Then to see the delight in your eyes turn to fear as I close the door behind you. The rest of my life, I will have to live with what I did to you. On that night, I became a monster. I do swear to you on forfeiture of my life, I will never harm another child, end quote. Now, when Gerald's parole officer found that, he was immediately sent back to prison. However, Gerald applied for parole again in 1997. And on January 1998, after a four-day parole hearing, a jury actually concluded, get this, a jury concluded that Gerald was not a sexually violent predator. And so because of that, they concluded that the Turner's Law actually did not apply to Gerald. So he didn't have to go to a halfway house or a mental institution and that he could be freed on parole. And he was free until 2003 when he violated parole 
again for having violent pornographic materials in his possession. In 2003, he was sentenced to serve another 15 years in prison due to violating his parole and was scheduled to be released on February 1st of 2018. Now, Lisa's mother had created an online petition to try and keep Gerald incarcerated or in a mental treatment facility after his release, and the petition has collected over 34,000 signatures. Now, in 2018, he was released from prison. However, he was moved to a mental facility, but his attorneys are still currently trying to get him fully released. He is currently 72 years old at this time and is still attempting to be a free man. However, as of now, he is being held at the Sand Ridge Secure Treatment Center in Wisconsin. He is actively trying to be released from the facility and his attorneys are working very diligently to try and make that happen, which is incredibly terrifying and horrifying and frightening to think about. So this really is a to be continued case because there have been so many back and forths with this one. But I will be the first person to say that the fact that there is even a remote chance that this man can be released and be a freed man is baffling and horrifying and downright insane that that's even a possibility. The fact that a jury concluded that he was not a sexually violent predator after he had sodomized a nine-year-old and sent her into cardiac arrest due to the shock that she received is something that's inexplainable to me. I don't see a justification for that whatsoever. The fact that he has been released upwards of three times does not make sense. I don't see it being justified and I don't think that there is any reason that he deserves to be a free man. So that's what I think, but I'm very interested to see what you guys have to say about this one as well. So let me know in the comments below. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for joining for the second episode of Hollow Week. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and then every Thursday on YouTube as well. And you're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back tomorrow with a brand new case for you guys. But until then, stay safe. Bye guys. Bye.